Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. My name is Nisa Fraser. I'm a third-year resident at LAC USC Medical Center in Los Angeles, and I'm going to be going through a case with you today. We will be going through case 20 in the Pediatric Morning Report Beyond the Pearls book. This is a case of a three-year-old female with nausea, vomiting, and progressive abdominal pain. Let's get started. So we have a three-year-old female who presents to the emergency department with a one-day history of nausea, vomiting, and progressive abdominal pain. Her parents state that she has not been her usual self for the past week. She has felt more tired and is taking longer naps. Although previously bathroom trained, she has urinated on the bed for the past several nights. Parents deny any fevers or recent illness. The pregnancy was normal and the patient was delivered via spontaneous vaginal birth. She is up to date on all her immunizations. On physical exam, blood pressure is 105 over 56. Heart rate is 130 beats per minute. Respiratory rate is 20 breaths per minute. Temperature is 98.8 degrees Fahrenheit and oxygen saturation is 94% on room air. The patient is found to be irritable but responsive. Her mucous membranes are dry. Cardiac examination reveals tachycardia. Abdominal examination shows diffuse tenderness to palpation, and the remainder of the examination is normal. So let's talk about it. What are some causes of changes in mood and behavior, nausea, vomiting, polyuria, abdominal pain, and tachycardia in an otherwise previously healthy child? So an infection like gastroenteritis, pyelonephritis, or appendicitis should definitely be considered. But the presence of polyuria is suggestive of diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA. Let's talk about the history you'd want to obtain. You would want to know if there was a history of autoimmune conditions, including diabetes mellitus type 1, in the patient or patient's family's history, and whether there was a precipitating event such as an infection. So in general, when should you consider diabetic ketoacidosis as a diagnosis? A diagnosis of DKA should be considered in a child when the patient presents with nonspecific symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, fatigue, lethargy, and abdominal pain, or is simply ill-appearing. Patients younger than 5 years are difficult to assess because they cannot provide a detailed history. DKA at the time of diagnosis of type 1 diabetes mellitus is most common in children younger than 5 years and in children of lower socioeconomic status. Biochemical evidence may also be taken into account for the diagnosis of DKA. Let's go through a clinical pearl. The criteria for the diagnosis of DKA is hyperglycemia. So this includes a blood glucose greater than 200, venous pH less than 7.3, and or a bicarbonate level less than 15. There may be associated glycosuria, ketonemia, and ketouria. Based on the laboratory values and clinical picture, the diagnosis can be classified as mild, moderate, or severe. You can see the specific parameters in the book under Table 20.2. So what is the pathophysiology of diabetic ketoacidosis? DKA is due to insufficient circulating insulin in association with increased levels of counter-regulatory hormones, such as glucagon, cortisol, catecholamines, and growth hormone. 
These hormones contribute to rising serum glucose levels by increasing glycolysis and gluconeogenesis in the liver and kidneys. Hyperglycemia causes osmotic diuresis, electrolyte loss, dehydration, and impaired glomerular filtration. Despite having increased circulating glucose, uptake of the glucose is impaired due to insufficient insulin. Lipolysis results in the release of free fatty acids used in ketogenesis to produce ketones, an alternative source of energy. Ultimately, metabolic acidosis ensues. The progressive dehydration, hyperosmolarity, acidosis, and electrolyte imbalance exaggerate the stress hormone response propagating the cycle. So to go back to the case, if we look at the list of laboratory results of our patient, we can see that she meets the criteria for DKA given an elevated level of glucose, hers was 328, a low bicarbonate level, hers is 9, and then she's also found to have ketonuria, an elevated anion gap, and a low pH of 7.16. So how is the anion gap calculated and used? The anion gap is used to estimate the retained anions, which are usually beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. A normal anion gap is approximately 12 plus or minus 2. Patients with DKA typically have a higher anion gap due to increased ketones. Ketones are produced as a source of energy for the brain. The anion gap can be used to follow the treatment of diabetic ketoacidosis. As the DKA resolves, the anion gap will normalize. Here's a basic science or clinical pearl. The anion gap is the difference between the measured cations, like sodium and potassium, and the measured anions, like chloride and bicarbonate, in the serum. The normal value is approximately 10 to 14. In DKA, there is an increased anion gap due to retained anions. Major ions are beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. So your formula for calculating the anion gap is sodium minus chloride minus bicarb. So what is the first step in the management of diabetic ketoacidosis in this patient? The severity of DKA may be determined based on the physical examination and laboratory data. The physical exam includes assessing for the duration of symptoms. A longer duration is associated with more severe disease, compromised circulation, depressed level of consciousness, and risk for cerebral edema. Laboratory analysis includes assessing the degree of acidosis and bicarbonate. Patients in DKA should be admitted to the intensive care unit. Intravascular resuscitation should be started as soon as the diagnosis is made. There are three major components of DKA management, fluids, electrolytes, and insulin. Volume expansion is obtained with an isotonic solution such as normal saline or lactated ringers. The initial rate is 10 to 20 cc's per kg over 1 to 2 hours. Frequent reassessment of the patient is required. The serum glucose concentration is known to decrease with fluid resuscitation. Therefore, after the initial fluid bolus, 5% dextrose should be added to the IV fluids if the serum glucose level is less than 300. It may be necessary to increase the dextrose concentration to prevent hypoglycemia, which will allow continuous insulin infusion to correct the metabolic acidosis. Let's talk about how insulin is administered. So initially, IV hydration can decrease the glucose concentration, but overall, insulin is required to correct the glucose level to the normal range and suppress lipolysis and ketogenesis. Insulin therapy should be initiated one to two hours after fluid resuscitation. Currently, the standard of care is to start insulin infusion at a dose of 0.1 units per kg per hour and should be continued until resolution of the DKA episode, which is defined as a pH higher than 7.3 
bicarbonate level higher than 15, and or closure of the anion gap. Here's the clinical pearl. Infusion with IV insulin is the standard of care for the treatment of diabetic ketoacidosis in adults and children. Although there have been successful reports of treatment with subcutaneous rapid-acting insulin administered every four hours. So how are electrolytes followed and managed? So potassium. Overall, patients who present with DKA have a total body potassium deficit, ranging from 3 to 6 millimoles per kilogram. Potassium is mostly intracellular, and there is a shift to the extracellular fluid as a result of hypertonicity, insulin deficiency, and buffering of the hydrogen ions in the cell. Potassium is also lost during vomiting and osmotic diuresis. Volume depletion exacerbates the urinary potassium loss by causing a secondary hyperaldosteronism. Despite total body loss of potassium, the patient may present with hyperkalemia, hypokalemia, or normal potassium levels. Hyperkalemia may be present due to the renal dysfunction, which decreases potassium excretion. Treatment with insulin will lead to a decreased level of serum potassium by correcting the acidosis and causing an intracellular shift. Potassium replacement is essential in the treatment of DKA. Potassium replacement is recommended if the serum potassium level is normal or decreased. If the patient is hypokalemic, it is important to replete potassium before insulin administration to prevent acute hypokalemia. If the patient is hyperkalemic, potassium supplementation can be delayed until the urine output is increased. The maximum rate of potassium replacement is 0.5 millimoles per kg per hour. Here's the basic science pearl. Potassium and phosphate are the main ions found in the intracellular fluid. Therefore, low serum levels represent total body depletion. Sodium and chloride, on the other hand, are mostly found on the extracellular fluid. Now phosphate. Osmotic diuresis leads to a depletion of total body phosphate. Insulin administration will further decrease serum phosphate levels due to intracellular shifts. In prospective studies, administration of phosphate has not shown clinical benefit. Severe hypophosphatemia, so phosphate levels less than 1, have been shown to cause muscle weakness, which can be concerning in patients with respiratory failure. If phosphate is administered, calcium must be monitored carefully because there is a risk of hypocalcemia due to calcium phosphate binding. Phosphate repletion should be discontinued in the setting of hypocalcemia. Hypophosphatemia may persist for several days after resolution of the DKA. So let's get back to our patient. The patient is given IV fluids and an insulin infusion. She weighs 29 kilograms and IV insulin was started at 2.9 units an hour with close monitoring of her electrolyte and serum glucose levels. During treatment, the patient starts to become more irritable and repeat vitals at this time show that her blood pressure is 127 over 74, heart rate is low at 66, and respiratory rate is 19 breaths per minute. So what are the risk factors for cerebral edema and how does it present? Cerebral edema occurs in 0.5 to 1% of pediatric patients who present with DKA. Given that cerebral edema has a mortality of 21 to 24%, recognizing this complication is crucial to the treatment of this patient. The risk factors for cerebral edema include increases in serum sodium levels during treatment, severe hypocapnia, severe acidosis, and an elevated blood urea nitrogen level at presentation which represents a degree of dehydration. Patients typically present with cerebral edema 4 to 12 hours after treatment is initiated, 
but may develop this at any time during treatment. Frequent assessments of the patient to monitor for signs and symptoms of cerebral edema, which include headache, decreasing level of consciousness, increase in blood pressure, inappropriate slowing of the heart rate, decreased oxygen saturation, and recurrence of vomiting are essential. The presence of Cushing triad, defined as hypertension with widened pulse pressure, bradycardia, and irregular respirations, signals cerebral edema and is a late sign, so it's denoting impending cerebral herniation. So what is the treatment of cerebral edema? Given that cerebral edema during the treatment of DKAN children is a rare occurrence, the evidence behind treatment is limited. Treatment should be initiated as soon as the diagnosis is suspected. Case reports have shown that IV mannitol, 0.25 to 1 gram per kilogram over 20 minutes, may be beneficial. This treatment can be repeated after 2 hours if there is no response. Hypertonic saline, so 3% sodium chloride, at a rate of 5 to 10 cc per kg over 30 minutes, can be used as an alternative. It has been noted that hyperventilation in patients diagnosed with cerebral edema can lead to poor neurologic outcomes and therefore should be avoided. Here's the basic science pearl. The mechanism of cerebral edema is poorly understood. The current theory is that cerebral edema may be related to cerebral hypoperfusion prior to treatment and to vasogenic edema during DKA treatment as a result of the reperfusion of ischemic brain tissue. Mannitol and hypertonic saline reduce blood viscosity and improve cerebral blood flow. So let's get back to our case. The patient is started on IV mannitol at a rate of 14.5 grams over 20 minutes. The dose was calculated as 29 kilograms times 0.5 grams per kg equals 14.5 grams. The patient's mental status improves slowly over the next hour. Our patient is doing well and she has a growing appetite. Her clinical exam and laboratory analysis show resolution of the DKA. She has weaned off the insulin drip and transitioned to subcutaneous insulin. So what is the evidence for the resolution of diabetic ketoacidosis? Normalization of the blood glucose concentration is one of the first signs of improvement in DKA, but is not a sign of resolution of DKA. DKA is considered resolved when the pH is higher than 7.3, bicarb level is higher than 15, and or the anion gap is closed. So how is subcutaneous insulin calculated in it and administered? Pre-pubertal total daily dose of insulin should be approximately 0.75 to 1 unit per kilogram. Half or slightly more of the total daily dose should be long-acting basal insulin. To calculate the initial carbohydrate coverage ratio, divide 450 by the total daily dose. This is equivalent to the grams of carbohydrates per unit of insulin for rapid-acting insulin. Here's a clinical pearl. Smaller proportions of insulin prior to meals, such as one quarter or one third of the total daily dose of insulin, is required for infants, toddlers, and preschool-age children. Children tend to require more intermediate or longer-acting basal insulin than adolescents or adults. Prior to discharge, what is essential for the patient as well as the parents? Parents and patients, if they are old enough to comprehend, should be educated on the signs and symptoms of TKA. They should also be educated by a trained diabetes educator on insulin administration, how to check glucose levels by finger stick, what signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia to look out for, and troubleshooting problems with insulin administration. All patients should have a medical alert bracelet stating type 1 diabetes as well. So our patient and her parents received thorough diabetes mellitus and DKA education through a trained educator 
The parents are given the emergency contact line for Pediatric Endocrinology Clinic, which is available 24 hours a day and 7 days a week. Let's talk about how diabetic ketoacidosis can be prevented in the future. Families with a history of type 1 diabetes mellitus should be educated about the signs and symptoms of diabetes, and therefore could assist in the diagnosis of the condition prior to an episode of DKA. Once a patient has experienced an episode of DKA, it is important to have an inpatient consultation with a diabetes educator. Patients should also have access to a 24-hour helpline for emergency situations. It is also essential to recognize that diabetes education is an ongoing process and should be continued in the outpatient setting. Insulin emission is one of the main causes for DKA in young patients with an established diagnosis of diabetes. DKA prevalence is reduced tenfold if a responsible adult administers insulin. So let's summarize our case. We had a three-year-old female presented with nausea, vomiting, and progressive abdominal pain for one day. We have found that she had tachycardia and dry mucous membrane. Laboratory analysis revealed an anion gap of 19, glucose level of 328, and bicarb level of 9, with a pH of 7.16. Your analysis confirmed ketones. We diagnosed her with diabetic ketoacidosis complicated by cerebral edema. For treatment, we started IV fluids, IV insulin, and electrolyte repletion, and we transitioned her to subcutaneous insulin once the patient's mental status and symptoms of nausea and abdominal pain improved. The anion gap normalized, the pH was higher than 7.3, and the bicarbonate level improved to above 15. She suffered a mild case of cerebral edema, which was improved after administration of IV mannitol. She and her parents received diabetes education prior to discharge, with close follow-up with a pediatric endocrinologist. Let's talk about some remaining pearls. So diabetic ketoacidosis is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in children with type 1 diabetes mellitus. Mortality in these patients is strongly linked to cerebral edema, which occurs in 0.3 to 1% of all episodes of DKA. The inciting event that precipitates DKA is usually insulin omission in patients with known type 1 diabetes mellitus, but can be the initial presentation of type 1 diabetes mellitus at diagnosis. Patients at increased risk for DKA include children with poor metabolic control, previous episodes of DKA, psychiatric disorders, peripubertal and adolescent females, or those from lower socioeconomic status who lack appropriate health insurance. Severe acidosis is reversible with fluid repletion and insulin. Insulin administration allows the ketones to be metabolized along bicarbonate production. Routine bicarb treatment is not recommended because it has not shown clinical benefit. Patients with severe acidemia, so like a pH less than 6.9, may benefit from cautious administration. IV administration of insulin is the standard of care for the treatment of DKA, but subcutaneous administration of insulin every 3-4 to four hours has been used and can be performed if a location has limited resources and access to ICU-level care. Further investigation into the classification of diabetes is required once the patient has been stabilized. Type 1 and type 2 diabetes mellitus are most common, but other forms of diabetes need to be investigated such as monogenic diabetes and maturity-onset diabetes of the young, also known as MODI. The classification can affect the long-term treatment course. Clinicians should also be aware that caring for a pediatric patient with diabetes mellitus requires a multidisciplinary approach, which includes the patient, patient's caregiver, a nutritionist, a diabetes educator, and a social worker. So that's the end of our case today. Again, my name is Nisa Fraser, and thank you so much for listening. 
Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.